Folks, we're back here. I'm here with uh, Clive Thomas, the uh, author of a new book, How to Lobby Alaska State Government. How you doing, Clive? Very well, thanks. Uh, Senator Johnny Ellis, uh, who I did a podcast with a while back, recommended you're going to be in town and to chat with you. And I started Googling you, and you've been around Alaska politics a long time. Yep, 30, 35 years. So I want to talk a little bit about, I want to talk a little bit about your new book, and then I want to talk about your time in Juneau and um, time teaching, and then talk about... Alaska politics, which uh, for me, it's, you know, it's pretty fascinating. Obviously, I do the landmine, so I'm covering that pretty close. Right. Um, How did you first get to, we were talking earlier, English originally, right? I'm originally from England, yes. I um, came to the United States first in 64 to, uh, as an exchange student, uh, during the the Johnson-Goldwater election. So that was my first major exposure to American politics. Um, I read a Nixon Land, which was oh, yeah, talking right. a lot about you know the Goldwater. Yeah. It's uh, very very interesting. And I uh, went to undergraduate school in England, came back uh, for grad school, worked as an intern in Congress for two summers, and then I worked for as an intern for the American Medical Association, where I learned uh, so much and got really introduced to lobbying and uh, the whole process of uh, influencing government. Where did, uh, where did you live when you were in your exchange student? What state? I was in I was in Northern Indiana, a town called Logansport. It's about uh, seventy five miles south and east of Chicago, and uh, about a hundred miles south and west of Detroit. So it's right up in the middle of uh, North of Indiana on I thirty one. Must have been a lot different than well, maybe a little similar to England. Uh, ge- yeah, ge- I mean it, it, it was different. It was my exper- first experience in the United States, so. Uh, you know, everything was new to me, and uh, I uh, I didn't realize that Indiana was so conservative at the time because I didn't really understand much about conservatism and liberalism and so on. But uh, I had a good time. The family I was with were I think, I think, nice. the, I think the Ku Klux Klan kind of was, was very involved it in was. Indiana in the 1930s. Very, and very much in that area and, you know, northern mm-hmm. Missouri. And they, they, I think they were – the governor of Indiana at one point was a member of the Klan. Probably, yeah. I I, I I didn't follow, or I'm not too familiar with a lot of Indiana history. I just know that uh, since I left, I realized how conservative it was. Um, but I, I had a very nice family and uh, had a good experience. And after that, I uh, bought a Greyhound bus ticket for $99 for 99 days. You could do that in the 60s. And I traveled to the four corners of the United States, Seattle, San Diego, Miami and Portland, Maine. And that was, wow. I don't know why I did that, but you know, when you're a kid, I was 19 years old, and that's what I did. And went back to Britain, went to undergrad school, came back here, as I said, to uh, for D.C. in three summers, and then um, went back to England uh, and was teaching. Got a tra- got a exchange teaching job in Kansas. Met my first wife. Um, uh, we decided to get married. I couldn't get a job in the States. Lived in Canada for two years. Then I moved to Iowa. Got a job at Iowa State University. I love the Midwest. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I sort of, I ended up in the Midwest a lot. I wasn't crazy about the Midwest. Uh, people were pretty nice, but I was brought up near the ocean, and I liked the ocean. And so uh, I applied, 1980, got divorced, applied for uh, jobs, didn't get, uh, any offers. Eventually, I got offered a job at the University of New Mexico, but by that time, I'd moved to Alaska. And uh, yeah, we talked about that before we started. That's where I'm from originally, New Mexico. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, I, you know, I liked. I, I certainly liked to 
probably been in Albuquerque, but it didn't work out that way, and I ended up in Alaska. So you you taught um, political science, you told me, right? Yeah, I I taught at what was originally called the University of Alaska, Juneau, when I got there in 1980. It had just been established as a new university. You know, UAA had been established, I think, in 75, and... uh, Fairbanks had been going since, you know, before statehood and uh, a long time before. Um, but so, yeah, I, I I was, in fact, the entire political science department there for all the time I was there. There was only one political scientist. So I, I got there in 80 um, and, uh, you know, So, so you, you got there right when the oil money was starting to kind of flow in. Yeah, so the you, oil you, money started flowing in, in June of 1978. So uh-huh. I was I was in... Uh, I came to Alaska just two years after that, and at that time, Juneau was, I wouldn't say it was a wild place, but it was a lot different than it is now. Well, I've done a lot uh, of podcasts with yeah, right. uh, people it, who have been it, around. And, yeah, it was, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a very interesting the, place. It's completely... People well, talk complete. about 80s, they talk about cocaine, yeah. they talk yeah. about... A well, lot yeah, of, I mean, I, ha- I have a lot of experiences like that. I, um, I, uh, when I first got here, um, I got to know some people in the legislature, and uh, first thing... They said, you want to come out? And I said, uh, you know, on Friday night. And I said, yeah, I'll see you about 8. They said, no, things don't start happening here till about 10 or 11. <laughs> the bars were open then, I think, till 5 in the morning. These are legislators uh, you were talking yeah, about? Well, yeah, well, a couple of staffers, basically, and a couple of legislators. And on South Franklin, which some people may know, um, it was basically, uh, there was a place called the Dreamland, which was kind of a... A dancing place. There was a bunch of bars. It was very, um, you know, it was sort of rough and tumble place. And, um, you know, the bars were open uh, very late there. And uh, there was the old Baranoff, the Baranoff Hotel, which burned down or burned, I think. Somebody set fire to it in 84. But it was a gathering place for legislators. Um, Is that where the same location of the current Baranoff? Oh, exactly the same place. Yeah. But there was a big room called the Bubba Room. And it's not the bar that's there now. The bar that's there now is is, is a very small uh, part. There was a, this big room with a, it had a, a painting of some, you know, somebody who looked like a bubble or something. And they they had round tables there, and legislators in those days would have tables. Like a guy called Don Bennett, guy, a guy called Bob Ziegler from Ketchikan, Bennett, I think, Don Bennett, I think, was from Fairbanks, uh, and various others, and people would come down there. And so a lot of business was done down there, you know, the old days. And, you know, the lobbyists would come down, Alex Miller would come down, you know, and some of the other, other lobbyists. And, uh, you know, when I first came to Juneau, a couple of these staffers, they took me down there and showed me the, you know, the ropes down there. And it, was, it, was, it wasn't it was a wild place, but there were lots of things going on. But there definitely was a lot of drugs around. I There was a house, I think it was probably on Seward. It may have been on Gold, just up behind the Capitol. And it was, it was called the Pink House. It was pink at that time. And uh, they would have parties there. I went to a couple of parties. And... Uh, left my coat in a room one night and, uh, you know, went to get it because I had to go home and there were people snorting cocaine in the room. Yeah, a couple uh, of legislators whose names I will not mention. I was going to say, I was going to People say, will know who those people were. Do you want to give the names? I've heard stories about people going to parties and there's, oh, yeah. you know, 80s and really yeah, even yeah. 90s. There's, you go and there's a bowl of cocaine and oh, yeah. people have told stories about doing coke off the fi- yeah. Senate finance table. Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know anything about that, but one of the things I always wondered was why it was so crazy. Is that you know the federal drug officers were you know the narcs were around there and I often wondered what happened. Uh, people got away with that, you know what I mean. So, but anyway, uh, so anyway, I I I was you know 
kept working at the university there. And I, uh, in 1986, uh, Johnny, in fact, how I first got to know Johnny Ellis, Johnny was, uh, uh, first of all, a staffer for a guy called Don Clarkson, and then he took over his, his legislature, took that seat when Clarkson retired. Yeah, yeah, he took and, and over that. And he and me and uh, Johnny and a lady called Cheryl Frasca, who worked for... Uh, oh, Cheryl, I, I know Cheryl. Yeah, She's yeah, still she, around. Yeah. She worked for, yeah, Cheryl. She worked for a lady called Jan Fakes, who was a legislator since passed away. And Johnny had worked for the uh, uh, for, for the city here, or for the borough, Anchorage Borough, and he'd been an intern, and I'm not exactly sure for whom, but he was into internship programs. And I'd ran, I'd been a deputy director of an internship program in uh, Iowa State. Uh, and so I was interested in getting a, a program going. When I got here in 1980, and suggested it to the people at the university. Oh, no, no, they said. Uh, there was a legislator. His name was, uh, I think, George Holman, and he was from Bethel, and he was a little bit, um, you know, you could say near the line. He ended up, I think, in prison for a while uh, oh, doing stuff. Um, but anyway, he was bringing in people from Bethel on internships, and it, it was, it was, you know, I think a, a little bit of a corrupt business. So they told me to lay off of it. And uh, but by 87, the sort of dust has settled. And Johnny and I and, and Cheryl uh, put this program together. And it started in 88. And uh, it's still going. But when I left here in 212, I'd been doing it for about 25 years. Is this the kind of university? Um, oh, yeah, totally university. Because when yeah. I was there this last session, there was several... Ten or fifteen of them, and they had, oh yeah, it's now been, run by a guy called Glenn Wright, who's at UAS, yeah, and he well, was m- my student, my intern in two thousand. But we, when I was there, we had uh, when the twenty five years I was there, I had uh, around, I think it was two twenty five, two thirty students, and many of them are now staffers. And we had a couple of people elected to the legislature. I think Scott Kawasaki Trump. was a. Uh, he, no, he wasn't an intern, but he had he had interns. But you know, Darwin Peterson, who now worked for Her, Click Bishop, who used to be governor. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe Scott was a Scott was a te- Scott was an intern in D.C. Yeah, he may have been. Yeah, but Darwin Peterson, who was you know he's you know Bill Walker's yeah. um, you know the director, and now works for Click Bishop. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy called George Ascot, you may know, who who works now for for Harriet Drummond. Many many of those people gone through there, and Tom Bryce, who's now sort of retired, but he was a legislator from Fairbanks, and then he was a lot he lobbied for the. Uh, I think for the laborers union or, or one of the unions, and so many many people have gone through there. That, yeah, when, uh, I, when I was there, they had kind of um, uh, at the end of the ninety days or whatever it was, they had a little bit of a ceremony, and in the in the uh, yeah fair yeah. camp room, and they were all there and they all spoke, and it was really I went to it, it was really nice. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. It's it's you know it's a so, good experience. Some of them, some of them actually, some of the interns I think became almost right away staffers. Oh yeah, we we, but my by my my sort of rough estimate of the two hundred and twenty five people that. Went through the program when I was there. About a third of them started working for the legislature. Others, of course, went on to graduate school or got law school. But most of them found it to be a very it's major a, boost in their life. It's yes. a great experience. You know, my, yes. my, my, my kind of experience in Juno this last session was my first time. I ran for, I've ran for office twice, but I've never really – I've been to Juno for a day or two here and there. But being there for the whole session is really eye-opening. I mean, I think it, most people don't realize what happens there, and you, you yeah. can only understand it. If you're actually there, and not yeah, just for yeah. a couple of days, you really have yeah. to be there for the whole thing. Well, I, you know, as running the internship program, I was down in the legislature, you know, several days a week. You know, many legislators, uh, I knew a couple of them were my very good friends, some of them still there, some not. And of course, I knew a lot of staffers. And of course, I was kind of a popular person at the beginning of the session because. They wanted interns, so <laughs> very. They was all very nice to me. They, hey. they didn't get one. They weren't so, so nice, but no. So I got to know it pretty well, and that's what I was able to. You know, I didn't. Uh, 
a fair amount of writing on Alaska politics. I started doing it in the early 90s, and you know, I did a book in the late 90s, and I done several articles, and then I mainly did a lot of research on, on interest groups and lobbying there, as I have all across the United States and Latin America and in uh, in Europe. So. so I was going to, you know, one thing I wanted to discuss about your book and about lobbying, I mean, I've I've I deal with a lot of the lobbyists all the time and see them in the Capitol and become buddies with some of them, and uh, it seems to me that the lobbying of 30 years ago is probably a lot different than the lobbying of today, as well, far as how they interact with legislators and, and maybe how they. Well, I mean, in some ways, yeah, in some ways, no. I mean, the, 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 wherever you are, whether you're in Alaska, Arkansas, Argentina, or. Uh, the Slovak Republic, you know, lobbying basically is, is the basics are the same. You know, it's it's a business built on personal relationships mm-hmm. and trust. It's a business uh, which involves information, presenting information, in some ways educating legislators who, of course, don't have a tremendous amount of time to cover everything. So they need things encapsulated. And also it's kind of a sales, you know, lobbyists are salespeople. I mean, they're trying to get a legislator to, uh, you know, support them, to, to part with some of their power and so on. Just like, you know, if you're going to buy a piece of furniture or a car, the salesperson is trying to get you to part with your money for the for the car or the furniture. So that's really what it's about. And so, you know, it's been that way, you know, for thousands of years in terms of, there's always been people trying to influence government. You know, they say that prostitution is the oldest profession. Lobbying must be pretty close to one of the oldest <laughs> professions because there's always been that's someone. A, that's a great. That's a great line. Someone has always been trying to influence somebody in government, right down to you know the early times when there were tribes and chiefs and so on, and that's gone on you know for years. It's become much more formalized in the last two hundred years, and you know the original probably may. may people we would now call lobbyists were really the railroad lobbyists in the 19th century, you know, when the railroads were coming across this country from the east to the west, and, you know, the railroads needed right away, they needed all sorts of other things. Yeah, and the, the oil, you know, the oil, the oil too. The yeah, oil right. They, they just, big, you know, they, to... they'd pay, you know, the, 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 uh, the lobbyists would pay off legislators for voting. In fact, the story is, I've never been able to verify it, but they say in, in the, you know, Wyoming, the state of Wyoming, was really the creation of the Union Pacific Railroad because it wanted to get out from under the feds. And the story is that uh, lobbyists would sit at the back of the chamber in the Wyoming legislature and pay off people coming out after they'd voted in their favor. Uh, it sounds a bit stark, but that's, you know, that's well, the Well, the, the interesting, you know, some people, I'm sure you heard about a lot of people criticize the per diem. It's like, oh, the per diem, they're getting all this money in per diem. Well, per diem's in the Alaska Constitution. And I was kind of curious. I said, why, why, is that, why is it in the Alaska Constitution? That's interesting. And what I found out was before statehood and territorial legislature, um, the, these people from Seattle, fish, fish lobbyists, oh, yeah, so fish, people, yeah. people who were doing different business, they basically, because some of these members of the territorial legislature didn't have that much money, and they pay them off oh, yeah, to, probably, to be yeah. able to get, you know, get by. And yeah. they said, look, we can't be having our legislators get, they have to have enough money to be able to live here. So right. that, that's where the per diem in the Constitution comes from. Yeah, the, uh, the you know, the... The state was really pretty much controlled by the the mining companies. Um, well, there was the Carnegie, right? Yeah, and, the, yeah. And, 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 um, yeah and 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 you know the the the, the fish Ken, processors, Ken, 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 right? yeah, yeah, Kennecott, the fish, Ken, 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 yeah, fish fish processors, you know, from New England and from Seattle, and so, you know, that was because Alaska was basically, in a sense, a colony, which uh, 
was exploited for well, for material, you know, for uh, mining, you know, for gold and other things, and also for fish, of course. We were talking about Stephen Haycox earlier from UAA, the history professor, and he has a, a book, Alaska and American Colony, which yes, talks I mean, a lot I've about seen it. yes, talks a lot about I, this, this theory, yeah. and, and there's this not theory, yeah. but this idea of, of yeah. how history of Alaska is more of a yeah, well, at least until model. recently, I wouldn't call it a colony now. In fact, the very no, no, in the, the, the yeah. past, yeah. yeah, past, yeah, sure, probably up until statehood, probably in the 1950s, maybe a little bit beyond until oil started to flow. We, we the still pipeline. don't really produce. I mean, we everything we export is basically raw, you know, raw oil and raw minerals, and yeah. we don't have much of a value well, added. No, virtually almost everything that's consumed in Alaska comes from the outside, and almost <laughs> everything produced goes outside. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So you were there. I mean, you were there during you know. End of end of um, Hammond, yeah. Sheffield, beginning of Hammond, yeah. Sheffield. Two years of Hammond, yeah. The end of Hammond, you had Sheffield. I mean, Cooper, all the the Exxon yeah. Valdez, every and, all the way through to Parnell. The the, the 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 Parnell got defeated in two two fourteen. I was there in two twelve. I left in two twelve. Although I come back four or five or six times a year. So where, where are you living now? I live in Corvallis, Oregon. Okay, so a lot of Alaskans in Oregon. I'm sure, you run into them sometimes. Yeah, it's about it's about eighty uh, about eighty miles south of Portland and a little bit west of, of there, and about fifty miles from the coast, Oregon coast, and it's where our Oregon State University is. So you know, maybe just talk about a little bit about how Juno, when you were there in the late seventies, early eighties, a lot of money, and then there was the crash in the eighties, the oil price crash. Maybe talk a little bit about how things changed when, okay. when the money well, what, was. Well, what, what happened, of course, is after the um, uh, after the oil came through, you know. There was a lot of money around, and you know there there are stories which I know I know one of them is true that people, for the capital budget which was you know pretty huge in those days for building all sorts of things you know a lot of Anchorage in fact uh, was built on money from the capital budget Project Eighties oh, yeah oh yeah I mean it was very very big stuff and you know downtown Anchorage was completely you know transformed because of that money um, and I, you know downtown Anchorage was a pretty wild place when I first came here in nineteen eighty. But anyway, so in Juneau, um, and I, I think this happened throughout the state, but, uh, you know, it was big money. Uh, and, uh, for example, I just use a personal example. I bought a condo out at Oak Bay, which is about um, 12 miles from downtown, going, yeah, out, the, going out the road. By the ferry. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, just before the ferry system. It's, uh, it's just right on Oak Bay there. And I paid seventy two grand for it in nineteen. 19- 81, or at least that, I had a mortgage, of course. and uh, It's kind of expensive it, for the 80s, isn't it? For, oh, well, yeah. well it was, and interest was 13%. Then, right, so that was in the rates were really Pretty high. bad, yeah, sure. But anyway, um, you know, I lived there and everything, and um, I uh, then, you know, I met my, my present wife, moved in with her, and uh, in 1986, the crash came, uh, and my condo was worth about 100 grand uh, in 85. It was worth forty thousand dollars after the crash, and so I had to rent it out for several years uh, for for a loss, so I wouldn't lose my you know my credit rating, and so it made a tremendous amount of difference, and it it, it changed many things. The university started to merge the community colleges with the main colleges. Um, about twenty percent of people were were just throwing their keys on the counter and leaving their houses because you know yeah, they were debt. I've heard that the um, It was all sorts of things like that, and you know there was I I knew a lady fairly well who was a um, 
a real estate person there, and she was a friend of one of our friends, and we'd go out drinking on a Friday night. And she, for four years, there was nothing built in Juneau. I mean, I think the only building was the FAA building out by the airport because there was no... Uh, you know, there was no demand for stuff and so on and so. But it started to recover in the, in the in the early 90s. And then, of course, everything depends upon oil prices, of course. And that's what happened in 1986 was oil took a tremendous nosedive. The difference between now and then is back then the price of oil, you know, obviously had a big impact. But there was four times as much oil production. There was two million barrels. Now yeah. we're at yeah. half a About 500 million barrels. I think, yeah, something like that. Sure, yeah. So, so that was, you know, that was the thing. And then, of course, in the 90s, things were pretty uh, – they, you know, they, we ha- there was pretty low oil prices and so on. And then, but you know, basically, um, you know, things started to slowly recover. And then, uh, in two hundred eight and two hundred two hundred seven, two hundred eight, two hundred nine, oil just went through the roof. At I one remember point. when it was almost one fifty. Yeah. Oh, it was. It's, yeah, I think one forty eight, but it's pretty yeah. close to one fifty. That was and, when we had the major yeah. surpluses. Now, oil, and, 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 and of course, here, here's the thing about Alaska. Of course, is pretty true of most natural resource and exact. Yeah. natural source extraction economies people think that when the good times are here the bad times will never yep, come that's exactly right and and you know in the night in the late 80s and the early 90s when i was when you know i uh, when i you know was around here people never you know never believe but it always comes and um you know and there are two things i'm, I'm probably you're probably going to get people trying to bomb you after i say this i think the best thing that ever happened to alaska policy-wise it's the permanent fund. I mean, it's it's it was a masterstroke. The worst thing that ever happened to it was the personal was the permanent fund dividend, uh-huh. because you know the the permanent fund is is a very um, you know uh, foresightful thing, and you know the whole point of it back in the you know in the in the mid seventies was to sort of because of this you know this roller coaster ride of high prices, low prices, you know economy soaring, economy dipping, you know taking a nosedive. That, that this was supposed to, you know, even out that, and also to provide for the future generations when oil ran out, and that was the original intention of it. And in fact, in in the book I talked to you about the Alaska politics, but Scott Goldsmith, who is now retired, yeah, no, but, Scott. but worked, you know, worked at ISCR and is, is an expert on the permanent fund. He wrote the chapter in that book, chapter twenty five, and it just is is very, 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 you know. Uh, insightful uh, history of the permanent fund. But anyway, so, um, you know, the the state has always gone through these ups and downs and will. And, of course, the, you know, the permanent fund originally was first paid out in 82. There was a big sort of fight about it. was six years, but the, yeah, yeah. Per, it was established in 76, but the first dividend was no, like six you know, years later. Yeah, well, the, the, the idea that the dividend came in, in, in the early 80s and it was – well, there was actually a reason, it was not the brainchild, but it was Jay Hammond was the guy who thought that for the idea of you know you if you had a permanent fund, the public would not allow legislators to uh, spend all the money and you know be port barrel and stuff. So but anyway, so the when the fir- when the permanent fund first came in in eighty two, we all got a, a basic sum of about four hundred and four dollars, I think. Anyway, in the early years, it was just seen as a sort of a bonus. Was the first the, one a thousand bucks or? Yeah, I thought. Yeah, I thought it may have been. I thought the first one was four hundred and four, but there was a big fight about residency. You know, whether well, it's, it's, residency. Well, they they originally wanted to do it that you'd be paid for every year you were in right. Alaska, but the U.S. Supreme Court, I think, struck that down. That was a Zobel, Zobel decision. Yeah, Zobel. Yeah, the Zobel case. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, in the early years, it was kind of a, a, a bonus, uh, sort of you know something you got, but eventually it became considered to be a right, and of course it is. Completely 
gotten that way now, and of course this is one of the major divisions, as you know, in the uh, in the state, and particularly in the last election, um, that people just somehow they think that this is their money, and uh, right. And of course, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, but it's it's become a very very well. I mean, the Supreme thing. the Supreme Court has you know said it's subject to appropriation. I I, I agree with you to, for the most part. I mean, I will say if there was never a dividend, I, I think the fact that a dividend existed for so many years, I think it kept the public very watchful of, yeah. of the permanent fund. And that money would have probably been and, wasted. And there's wasted. a good chance if yeah. nobody was invested into it, for, for the, right. there's a good chance it may, may have been squandered or spent. Right, sure, yeah. But, but I also, you know, I, I'm a person who personally believe, and I've run for office a few times, and I've, in 2016, I, I said, I think we should, you know, pay whatever dividend we can afford, but but I don't think we should be taxing ourselves with sales tax and income taxes if, if we're having enough money to, to fund a real, you know a reasonable budget, capital budget, and operating budget, and and still have some kind of dividend and not not have to pay any taxes. That's an, that's an incredible situation to, to be in. Right. Um, and it's just it's it's you mentioned this with Zobel. I mean, the first idea of the dividend was was for residency based, and that changed right. with the Supreme Court. Okay. Right. And then yeah. there was there was a case in the '90s about permanent residents if they'd be able to qualify. So that then the that was that was one. Yeah. So the people who who qualify for it. Now, I mean, it's very different than how it was originally set up. And, and you have these permanent fund, hardcore, you know, we want our permanent fund over anything else. And it's, uh, it's just become, I think you're right, it's become this entitlement. Yeah, yeah. And it's so funny how we have some of the most conservative members of our government are some of the biggest supporters of the, of the dividend. Yeah, yeah. It's a government check, basically. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it's, it's in a sense, I mean, you could say it's... Uh... You know, it's not exactly welfare. People say, you know, it's their money. I don't. I mean, it, it's it's a debatable thing. I mean, because, I'm, I'm not going to get into the because debate it's evenly about distributed. It. Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess yeah, you yeah, you could say that. And of course, it's a very very major source of uh, uh, infusion of cash in the bush, and that's right. a very major part of, of of the money that goes into the bush. I guess the question is, and I'm not going to get into whether it's right or wrong, but the question is, you know, do you pay the dividend out? It, 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 and of course, it's. Dunlap is not going to get his three thousand dollars now, but uh, back pay. But you know, do you do that, and then you cut things like the university and other parts of state government, which you know really, in many ways, are driving forces. And are if the future of the state is going to be anywhere, it's going to be in its university system and its young people. So well, I think a lot of people. It's a question, yeah. Since this big debate started, you know, a lot of folks they voted for the governor because he was saying, "Look, seven thousand bucks, you know, three thousand this year plus back pay." But I think some folks are starting to think, and this is. Kind of shifting the attitude, maybe on on the dividend, is you know it's three thousand bucks worth government, you know, school funding, university funding, um, funding for homelessness issues, funding for you know they were going to turn the street lo- street lights off in the Palmer or in Wasilla on the highway yeah. recently to save money. I mean. People are starting to say, "Is this worth it?" You know, well, uh, fa- cutting back the ferry system for ferry all those system, for, right, all, yeah. for all those coastal towns that you know that rely entirely, almost entirely, on the ferry. And there was, there was a, I don't know if you heard, there was a thing two weeks ago where they were going to shut out the lights on the highway to Wasilla for three yeah. or four hours a, a night to save yeah. money, two hundred thousand dollars a year. And the public was like, are you, you know, "Is this fucking crazy? How, yeah. We need these lights so we can see when we're driving." Yeah, it could be, it could be a lot of accidents. You know, I mean, it's like, I'd rather have my lights and then you know an extra dividend check. Yeah, right. Yeah. So. But you know, I, it, it is a very divisive issue, and I think. But one of the things that um, uh, a friend of mine, a guy called Greg Erickson, who's no longer in the state, but he used to he's an economist. He now yeah, I've, heard, I've I have an economics. Yeah, Greg, yeah, yeah, and yeah, Greg yeah. You, you know, did sort of consulting on economics and so on, and he now lives in I think Bend uh, in, in Oregon, 
Um, but he used to say, you know, we don't want to pay taxes, but when the day comes that, you know, there's not enough money around, people be willing to give up their permanent fund and pay taxes. I don't think that's true. That's well, good. And that's the the yeah. thing is, and you said it earlier, it was the permanent fund was designed to turn a you know, non-renewable source of wealth into a renewable long t- long-term source of, of um, income. Yeah. And and everybody at the time, people talk about Hammond and they talk about all these quotes, but they always leave out that he supported the income tax. But at the time, if you go back and read the discussions and watch the videos, everybody said it was the permanent fund. The point of it was to help fund government when oil no longer could. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think it matters if we got there 10 years ago, today, or in 50 years. Whenever that point comes, and I think we're there now, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to say, wait a minute, that's my dividend. Yeah, and and that's with you know forty yeah. years of an entitlement is going to almost forty. Oh, years yeah, of an I mean you know they say you know it's it's very difficult, very difficult, and in fact impossible to take away an entitlement. You know people, you know my grandmother used to say today's privileges are tomorrow's demands. So you know it was a privilege in the eighties and early nineties, but oh, now it's like, become yeah, like it's that. become a demand. You know, and I think that, but you know, getting back to what you were talking about regarding the. Um, the income tax or the state income tax. You know, Alaska is the only state in the union that has no statewide sales tax or no yep. no income tax. So you know, in the, some states have, you know, one or the, or one or the other. And one of the things, you know, I, I interviewed Hammond several times over the years when he was. Uh, oh really? Wow. Yeah, and afterwards, what you know, was, what I, was he like? He looked like a pretty rough guy. Like a tough was an guy. Intre- in, in fact, I'll tell you an interesting story about that in a moment. But anyway, he, uh, my wife worked for him, and uh, when you know, in, in the, she was an attorney working for the, they was working on the permanent fund. But anyway, I got to know him, and I actually, um, we talked a bit, and he, you know, he had to give up the idea of taking the income tax down to a zero. Uh, percentage and actually, you know, they had to repeal the income tax. Whereas if they were able to put it down to a zero amount, they would have always had it on the books to yeah. raise it when they needed it. But you know, getting an income tax passed now it would be almost impossible. So you you you, you got that. But uh, but and also towards the end of his life, I think it was about a year before he died. I talked to him again. It wasn't a formal interview. And I, I think he stated this in his memoirs, whoever it was, but he actually regretted the permanent fund dividend in the end because I think he saw what it was doing and it would probably, you know, it took on a life of its own. But, it, you know, to tell you about the state and a little bit of story about Hammond, um, I came first came to the state in 1980 and um, I shared an apartment. It was very hard to find a place. I shared an apartment with a guy who taught music at the university. And one night he said, you know, I'm going to go to a... a a, uh, a group sing people sing along Fritz Cove Road, which you know is is not for, is out the road there. Yeah. And so I, you know, I didn't really have anything to do, so I went with him. But I I didn't sing, and he was singing. So I went and sat in a room, and there was a guy opposite me with a beard, you know, with a lumberjack shirt on, and so on. And I sat down, and he said, "Hi, how are you doing?" I said, "Fine." And he said, uh, "You know, what do you do?" And I said, "Well, I'm I work at the university. I just got here, and so on." And um, you know, I've only been here a month or something like that. And he, and he said, well, you know, welcome to Alaska. And I said, you know, what do you do? He said, well, he said, I work for the state. Oh, fuck, was I, a Jay Hammond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, I work for the state. And I, and I said, well, which department do you work for? Exactly, exactly. And he said, I don't really work for a department. And I said, well, what do you do? He said, I'm the governor. So, you know, I, that was, you know, I, I had no idea who the – when I came to the state, you know, to get my job, I had no idea who the governor was, you know. And so – and they wanted me to teach Alaska politics. They, was, they, they were starting kind of an Alaska sort of um, – uh, I guess you could say uh, – 
theme or, or what do you call it? You know, and it, that included Alaska history. It included Alaska politics. Dep- department? Included, or? Yeah. Yeah. No, not department, but it's sort of a, um, you know, a degree program in that area where, mm-hmm. where you had, you know, a major, a major in that area. Okay. No, not necessarily a whole degree, of course. But anyway, so, and, and they wanted to teach Alaska politics. Well, I knew nothing about Alaska politics when I came here. But I had taught state and local government and I, you know, when I was teaching in Iowa and so on. And so, you know, I asked for about two years and I started teaching Alaska politics in, I think, 83. So, And, of course, I was very apprehensive teaching it, first of all, because I was teaching it to people who've been around the state for 20 and 30 years. But by the early 90s, I felt a bit more confident, and that's when I started writing stuff on Alaska politics. Wow, so you, when you said he was governor, did you believe him? or were you? Oh, yeah, I had no reason not to believe him, you know, really. <laughs> Some guy in a bar. You know? Yeah, right, yeah. And so, and, and, well, you know, this is the thing about Alaska. You never know. When, when I was working, talking to, I moved know. here in 04 to, to Anchorage here when I was 19. And in 05, I started working at Cal Worthington Ford for a year. I sold cars. Yeah, at a yeah. Car dealership. And, yeah. and I was still very new to Alaska. And uh, I was on a, you know, our team. You work with seven or eight people on a team. And, um, you know, one day this guy walks in and I was, nobody had talked to him. And I, I mean, I totally, you know, judge a book, don't judge, judge a book by its cover. And this guy, Guy walks in, he's an older guy, he's wearing suspenders, and, you know, and we kind of just, I didn't, the kind of, almost, almost like he just got off, you know, like a construction job or something. Yeah, yeah. And I, I just, I, I, I guess I kind of ignored him and didn't, didn't end up, I said hi to him, and I didn't really take him serious, like he was going to buy anything, and somebody else went and up talked to him, and, and then a little while later, I see him in the, in the back where they signed for car, and I was like, what's that guy buying something? And, uh, he, uh, he bought a brand new truck with gold. He mm. had a big briefcase full of gold. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, Interesting, yeah. 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 And then there was another time where I was talking to a guy, and he was just browsing around the park. And after that, that was right when I started, and I kind of learned, like, look, talk to anybody. Yeah. And I, I was in the parking lot, and there was a guy I was chatting with, and, and he was just you know, wearing jeans and a kind of, you know, T-shirt in the summertime. And, and I asked him, can I help you? What, are you? what are you looking for? And he described a blue F-150, you know, quad cab lariat you know leather and he just described this truck right and i said actually we have one of those trucks and i took him to back and showed it to him and and he um said yeah yeah that looks good i'll take that and I, nobody says that in the car business i said what i said well, i have to drive it he goes no i have a lot i have plenty of these i don't need to drive it i'll just i'll just buy it i'm in a hurry and i said um all right so i go back to the manager and i said this guy is here he wants to buy the truck doesn't want to drive it there's a policy everybody has to take a test drive you know in case yeah. they don't like the car and they yeah. say i don't like it and my manager says, well, what are you talking about? And I said, he said he wants to buy it. I, he's right there. So she goes in, turns out the guy wrote, you know, wrote a check for it. He negotiated, but he owned this big construction business. Yeah. And, I mean, you would just never tell by looking at the guy. Yeah, right, sure. And yeah, he just yeah. writes a check for, you know, $50,000. Well, you know, you, 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 you know, you could travel on a plane. As you know, everybody does that at Juna because it's other than a ferry. There's no real way to get out. And, of course, if you want to travel fast, yeah. you've got to be on a plane. You know, you never know, you know, who's on a plane sitting next to you, whatever it might be, and, and so on. You, you just, and you know, one of the things you've got to be careful about in Juno, especially in the legislative session, is saying things about people because, you know, you you could be well, in the Baranoff, you could be in the... Especially uh, if I'm around. Yeah, and oh, when the Anchorage Airport, you know, you could be in the Juno Airport. You could even be in the, you know, the sea terminal or the end, you know... The, the end terminal in, in the Seattle, Seattle airport, yeah, people yeah. just getting on the plane to come north. You've got to be. I've I've seen not a lot, but several situations where people have 
made comments and it's come back to haunt them or somebody was sitting right behind him and they didn't look, you know, so yeah, that's I, the nature I've, of Juno. I've, I've flown so many times back and forth to, to Juno and it's like, it's incredible. You get on the plane and, you know, it's like legislator, legislator, le- commissioner, commissioner, legislator, yeah, commissioner right, yeah. on one plane. It's just packed oh, full yeah. of oh, staff, yeah. you know, all these different folks oh, yeah. are, oh, yeah. have been yeah. lobbyists. Yeah. Lobbyists like first, you know, they, the legislators try to, some of them sit in first class, but a lot of them avoid it because it looks bad yeah. luck, but the lobbyists don't, they don't care. They'll oh, yeah, sit in right. first yeah, class. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's, so it, it, it is, you know, it's, it's my friends, you know, I don't know if you know Denny DeWitt, who, who lobbied for the, uh, for the Small Business Association. I, I, know, the, I know the He's name. He's now retired. Yeah, the it, it, it got, the job got taken over by a guy called Thor Stacey, who's one of my former oh, students. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, yeah. I, know, I know Thor really well. Yeah, wow. yeah, right. He's he's one of my former students, and he and I are pretty good I'll, buddies. I'll tell him uh, after we're oh, done. Yeah, I'll, you t- know, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll probably talk. I talk to him, you know, two or three times. When I come to Juno, he and I go out to, you know, usually to lunch or something like he's that. A, he's, yeah. a, he's a fun, he does a... The, he's he's uh, a good guy. Yeah. Hunter, Hunter, the, the, yeah, yeah, right. He's been, yeah, because he actually is the guide. Yeah, he is, He goes out guiding in the summertime <coughs> excuse me he just got so, back uh, last month for yeah the, probably the, yeah the I'll, I'll i'll give him because you know i he helped me with a little bit with that book so i'll so i'll, I'll tell him it's out but anyway so um you know you you just don't know who you're talking to when you're when you're uh you know that's such somebody. a strange i think it's so much different i've, I've lived through my kind of adult life but i just i feel like you know you have such access not even to the state level but even you know, I can go talk to Lisa Murkowski or Dan Sullivan or Don. Right, I can yeah. go to an event and just talk to them. Yeah, but don't forget, everybody else can too. So, right, you know but I mean? just, so if, yeah, but I, what I'm saying is, a, it can cancel out in yeah. a state, yeah. you know, like California or Florida or Texas. Oh, right, you yeah. can't, nobody can get to those people. It's probably impossible. Yeah, where right. here it's like yeah. not, not a big deal. To well, thir- thirty. 35, 38 million people in California. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's kind of hard. It's more so. difficult. But, you know, back to uh, what we were talking about, this friend of mine, Denny DeWitt, calls Alaska the, the biggest little village in in the world. And that's what it uh-huh. really is, isn't it? You know, it's big, but it's kind of a, it's not exactly I, a village atmosphere. Another thing it's I've, like that. Another thing I've heard is Alaska is a, big, Alaska is a small town. Yeah, it is. It's really, similar yeah. kind of. Well, you think about it, everybody, not Everybody doesn't know everybody else, but people in certain professions, like me teaching political science or in the university system, you get to know a lot of people, presumably the people who are in the medical profession, obviously all legislators and staffers, you know, people in the, I guess, in the, in the various... Legal. Uh, yeah. Legal, yeah, the lawyers and, you know, the people probably in the, you know, in, in the sort of uh, uh, real estate business, all yep. those people, they they all know one another because they belong to associations. And so it really is, a, in that sense, it's a small you know, small town, and, uh, you know, people feel, you know, quite comfortable going up and talking to, you know, legislators in the grocery store or, or whatever else, they have restaurants, which to me would be a bit of a pain when I was trying to have a quiet dinner, but, you know, you got to, that's part of the job, part I of guess. The, part yeah, of the lifestyle. Part of the job, so, yeah. So sure. the book, your How to Lobby Alaska State Government, who's who's your kind of audience? Well, talk? basically, um, let me give you just a quick bit of background. You know, I um, I told you I, I work as an intern for the American Medical Association, and I worked in the Iowa legislature. I took off a semester when I was teaching there. I taught there for three years, and I took a semester off and worked for the finance committee. And my ex-wife was um, uh, an in-house counsel for the uh, Iowa uh, Medical Association, and so I got to know quite a few lobbyists there. And I was always been interested in the practical side of lobbying, and uh, you know the, the whole dynamics of it. So. I taught a few courses there about, you know, organizing to lobby. And when I came to Alaska, beginning in about 83, 84, when I got to know the system, you know, got to know the system a bit, didn't obviously know it uh, in depth at that time, but I started doing these short 
one-day, two-day courses. And also, for example, you know, organizations like the Municipal League, I did a lot of stuff for the Municipal League and the School Boards Association. They bring in people that you know to fly in. You know, they yep. they bring people in. And, you know, you'd have the executive director and, you know, they, they needed – these you know, these people that got on school boards, you know, some of them are accountants, some of them maybe a supermarket manager – Politics is not something they've done before, but they have an interest in doing it. But they don't really know how to deal with the legislature approach. They don't know much about the structure. So I would do a one, sometimes a half day, someday a, a whole day course, helping them to get acclimatized to the legislature. So I, I, you know, and every other year, the university, through the Cooperative Extension Service, we put on a two-day workshop. And that would be, you know, I'd provide the structure, but we'd have a panel of, of legislators, a panel of staffers, a panel of people from the departments, a panel of people from, you know, who are journalists and so on, to look at the whole sort of, uh, the holistic picture of the legislature. So I, I would do this. And people would say to me after, you know, why don't you, uh, you know, is there a book or is there some other resources that I can get to, to use for this and I said well there really isn't you know there wasn't anything here um, you know there are books on lobbying but they're not specific to Alaska so you know I, I was meaning to do this in 210 so you know whatever 10 years ago 9 or 10 years ago the university used to have a division called corporate programs and it was basically uh, they provided like one or two day courses for, for, for business and so on. For example, they might have one day course on dealing with different difficult people in you know, in your job. Or they might have a thing on, you know, understanding a balance sheet, or they may have something on, you know, dealing with um you know, uh salespeople or something. And there was a sort of a certificate program that they had which was basically for people who didn't have degrees but, you know, were being sort of working as sort of middle-level people. And one of the things I wanted there was a course on how to deal with government and how to deal with state government. And I put together a manual for them, and I taught the course for three or four years, and they went out of business. And um, then I moved, of course, I moved out of state. But anyway, I was working on this massive Alaska politics, public policy book that I talked to you about before, which took me for almost five years to do. And I published that in 2016. And I, I still I was coming up here, and I still do come up here four or five times a year, do these little workshops and so on and other things. And so when I finished that book, I didn't have anything else specifically going on. So the University of Alaska Press, found, or one of the people there, found this manual that I'd done for the, um, for the corporate programs people. And they said, would you be willing to turn this into an actual book? Well, um, I... You know, I was sort of thought about it, and then I decided I, I would do it. And at that time, I don't know if it was the present president, uh, Jim Johnson, or the previous president, Pat Campbell, but they wanted the university press and the university generally to be more, um, I guess you could say, uh, focused or, or relate more to the, you know, the state and the public. And I think that this is one of the things that uh, the university press thought you know, could be used so, to be yeah, it could be, it could be a very very a, a general public value. So is the book is the book out yet, or is it not? No, it's coming out. It's coming out today. Is the thirtieth of October. It should be out on Friday, which is the first of November. It will certainly be out next week. Def- and, definitely want to definitely want to read yeah, that. It looks, so it's going to be out next week, and it's, it will be on in the stores probably by the middle of uh, middle of of. Uh, uh, November and it only costs twenty five dollars and it's it's you know it's it's worth you know getting if you're interested in this or you could you know by the time the end of uh, November early December comes it'll probably be in books you know probably be in libraries so you know if you can't afford it you could look at in the library but basically so anyway I I um I decided to put this book together and 
you know, get to your very first question uh, about who is it for, basically, it's for really anybody in Alaska who's dealing with interest groups and lobbying. And, but I could break that down for you into five categories. First of all, people who have never lobbied before and uh, need some sort of primer or primer, whatever you call it, it will be very good for them because it's got some basic information in it. First chapter talks about the fundamentals of lobbying. It helps people understand about the psychology of of uh, policymakers because the whole, as we said before, the personal relationships business is very important. So for novices, the second group of people are people that from out of state, not necessarily people who are coming here, you know, working on the pipeline or something, but, you know, businesses that have uh, offices in Alaska, like somebody who comes up here working for, you know, one of the big oil companies. Like oil, oil search. Yeah, yeah. They just need, there's a bit, you know, it's, it's maybe a senior executive who just needs to know a little bit about how things work in Alaska and if they're going to deal with the legislature. So it would be that. The third group would be people who had lobbied before or started lobbying before but didn't have quite the success or the experience that they thought they should have. And, you know, maybe because they made a couple of, you know, sort of blunders or errors. For example, you know, maybe they overwhelmed the legislator with too much information instead of just, you know, encapsulating it into a page when they started off and working from there. Or maybe they 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 didn't realize that, you know, you don't really start with the governor or, or commissioner. You've got to start lower down where people can help you. They didn't understand, in fact, that the, you know, the way that things work, the authority structure in terms of the authority pyramid is not the power structure. And, yeah. you know, you've got, you know, there are people down in the middle like a... a uh, uh, you know, division director in a department or a staffer. A lot of people ignore staff. They think that they're lowly people and they want to go to the legislator or the governor. That's one of the biggest mistakes. Yeah, I mean, some of the make. most powerful people in that building are staffers. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they, they they have a lot of control, and depending on the uh, on the office, you know, some legislators give them a lot of you know a lot of leeway. Others don't, but people don't understand that well, so, they, so there's, the third, that, there's some of the like, fi- like long-term finance staffers that run the budget oh some you, of them have been around you know like yeah. you know a lot of them have been around like you know this guy a good friend of mine was an intern george ascot um you know and several other people have been around there for 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 ages tom wright for example yeah I, I like i like tom, tom tom's been around there for ages you know but anyway so that's the third category of people that you know maybe would try before um the fourth category of people are you know Contract lobbyists, professional lobbyists, and so on, who, you know, they have, they, they often, you know, bring down their their clients or, you know, their members to help lobby. And, you know, these, like I was saying for the first group, they don't necessarily understand the legislative process. So they could give them certain chapters of this book to read, say, about understanding legislators, or uh, there's a chapter in there. Uh, face-to-face meetings with legislators, you know, what to do and not to do in that situation. And there's a section also on, you know, the day-to-day operations of legislature, how to do committee testimony, all those sorts of things. And so they, you know, to save them time, they could give their clients or the people this and this help to help them understand, you know, so that they don't, when they go in to see a legislator, they don't screw up or something like that. So that would be what it for. And the last group are this, you know, one of the things that one of the reasons I, I I put this book together is over the years, you know, I've talked to a lot of legislators, you know, literally hundreds of them. I've interviewed probably over 200 lobbyists around the world. And one of the things that legislators say is when people come to see me, they don't really know how to present information. They don't really understand it. But they come to me with a general idea like I want to, you know, 
try to deal with domestic violence or something. I mean, they, they don't come with a specific ideal or they have all these very vague notions. And, you know, all I just heard her say is, I need information encapsulated for me for the first time to see what it is. You've got to know what you're talking about. You've got to have done your homework, you know, you, because if you come down with an ideal, the chances are that someone's always looked at that ideal sometime or another. And, you, you know, you're trying to, you know, you reinvented the will. So, you know, people need to understand they've got to do their homework. They've got to understand, you know, they want to, they need to present me information in a certain way. So in that sense, you know, if a legislator bought this book or whatever and, and they had it in their office and somebody came in who, you know, wasn't exactly prepared or didn't... Here, read this. They, they say, look, you know, you might want to buy this book or go to the library and, you know, read chapter, you know, 13, which talks about presenting material, read chapter 15, which talks about face-to-face meetings, and also give you a focus on how to deal with someone like me or something like that. So that that's what it's meant for. And so it, it's got a general... Um, six, you know, general six, six group, people like me, that yeah, yeah, follow the stuff. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and, you so know... See what you see what you're saying. Yeah, and it basically is, is it works like this. The first half of the book really is providing essential background for, that people need to understand about both the system and the psychology of legislators. So it, it, they're, they're, the first chapter is, is a fundamentalist lobby. And the second chapter talks about, or the title of it is, The Basics of Political Smarts. Understand, you know, how, how to think and act like a lobbyist. Because a lot of people don't understand about how to think politically. You know, they think they have an ideal. In well, I've always said that there's a lot of people like you're a doctor, or a lawyer, an engineer, a business person, and you say, you know, oh, I want to run for office. I'm, I'm really a good law- lawyer. I'm a really good doctor. And then they don't. They don't understand about politics. They don't understand any of the political stuff. They don't stuff. understand about, you know, and, and, you know, people think that they got a good idea that everyone would support it. You know, if they say something like, for example, well, we talked about this now, dealing with domestic violence. We've got this idea. Everyone's going to support it. We can't imagine it's going to go through exactly the way we want it. Well, you know, in politics, it doesn't happen that way because of the transactional nature of politics. But also, you know, whatever good ideal someone's got, there's always going to be someone who opposes it. And it may not be that they oppose it because they're against the idea. For example, let's take a department. If you're going to try to, say, for example, have more um, counseling about for, for people who are committed domestic violence so they won't go to prison, someone's going to have to deal with that. It may be the Department of Corrections. It may be Health and Social Services. And they may not be against the idea. They may, in fact, support the idea. But if it means a higher cost to them in terms of they're going to have to provide more staff or the court system and so on, but they're not going to get any more money, they're probably going to oppose it, not for any yeah, other reason good, good, than it's going to affect their policy. And this is one of the things that, you know, people, part of thinking politically is understanding what the ramifications of an ideal that you have might have and seeing what they are. You know, that's one of them. The other one, as we talked about before, is, you know, not assuming that the the authority structure in terms of the pyramid of an organization, right from the commissioner down to the janitor, is in fact the way that decisions are made in the power. I mean, you know, some well, commissioner I mean, might be there for four yeah. years, or eight, but I mean, the yeah. directors or the well, mi- commis- might be there 30 years. Commissioners are of different types. You know, some of them get their job because they worked on a campaign for the governor. They may be good, they may be bad. Many of them are charlatans. Many, you know, and so, but the people that are there on a permanent basis, the, you know, the, the, the long-term agency people you know they 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 probably know the system some people might call that the deep state yeah oh yeah some people negatively there are people that call it the deep state but you know eventually it may get to the commissioner and so on but people need to know where to go to help themselves another thing is this that people often say to me very proudly they say you know 
I went down to Juneau and I visited all 60 legislators. Why? What a waste of time. Why would you do that? You know, of those 60 people, probably only 15 or 16 are people that have enough political juice to help you. Maybe even less less than that. Maybe less than that. The rest of the people, you know, some of them can't help you because they're in the minority. And let's face it, the minority has virtually no influence whatsoever, though it's a little bit different now, I guess, in the Senate. But so they're not going to help you. And most, a lot of them won't want to help you because they, they're not interested in that issue. So the first thing you've got to do is to find out who you need to talk to to be able to help you. Visiting all those people, I mean, but people often, they don't understand that. They think they, they go down there and they talk to all these people. And so, so, I mean, there's various aspects of being able to think politically. And, you know, another one is the ideal of mutual benefit. That in fact, you know, you go to a legislator and well, they're not going to ask you for something. Obviously, if you can, if you're going to work on their campaign or help them do something like that, or you can, you can, you know, you can do something that's going to help their constituents. There will be some sort of mutual quo. quo although that's another term these days that you yeah, don't want to use very often. <laughs> so I mean, so there's all sorts of ways to think politically, and I think the other, the, you know, the. the it takes a while to be able to to think that way and people ask me well how do i do this um and i said well you can't really do it overnight the other thing i think that people don't understand is that when they think you know lobbying they think legislature and they think the legislative session they don't understand that the best time to put things together is in the interim when legislators are much more easily accessible, oh, yeah. no, they're, totally they're, they're in they're in their you know they're in their districts or whatever it might be. You can talk to them. You can lay the groundwork. You can do your planning. Because if you try to start up, you know, when the legislature is operating, it's, it's, you're too late. I mean, there was a woman you probably remember her when you were first here. There was a legislator called Ramona Barnes. She was quite a character. I, I've heard many yeah, many many Ramona, stories. She was about anchored, her. You, know, yeah. in, you know, she and I had. So, a, she sounds like an awesome person. She, oh yeah, she was a big lady. You know, and she. She and I had a few run-ins, but in the end, she kind of liked me. And um, I interviewed her a few times. And one of the things she said to me was, you know, if you haven't got your act together when the session starts, you're wasting your time. Because, you know, the session's so busy, and, you know, you can't get things going then. So people, they got to understand that. And one of the other things they got to understand is lobbying is about 80% management and organizing, and only about 20% contact. I so, mean, a lot of people think about it. It's just going down to Juno and talking to people. It's it's like anything else. You've got to organize it. You've got to manage it. You've got to, you know, do all this uh, planning. You've got to understand the things we just talked about. And, and it, it's really, in the end, it's a hard work, tedious business. It's not a high-profile sort of... Someone uh, told me when, uh, when she, they were a long time ago when she was speaker, you know, freshmen would get elected and some of them would, some of them would speak a lot, you know, and she didn't like that. And someone said she, she would, they wouldn't say who, but she passed a note to a, to a, you know, they passed notes all the time and passed a note to a freshman who kept talking, and they opened the note and it said, "Shut the fuck up." Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, sure. But anyway, so there's all that's that's the second chapter. Then, you know, the third chapter looks basically at the structure of government. You know, in terms of the players, it's not so much about you know, you know, this is the way that. Uh, thing of structure, but then it, you know it, it, it does that. Talks about first fourth chapter is called making sense of the state budget. A lot of people don't understand about the state budget, and and so it explains about that how it's put together, the politics of it. You know, and it's not like putting a household budget together, which a lot of people think is a different way of doing it there. And it talks about, you know, the, uh, you know, it's got a lot of the terminology that people wouldn't necessarily understand. It's got a sort of a glossary of things, you know. Like I, th- what is, I think 
Yeah. What is you know what is an appropriation? What it, what it, what is a you know what is a reappropriation? What is a supplemental? All those sorts of things. And then the fourth chapter, uh, the fifth chapter looks at called delving into the psychology and rules of public official, and it looks into the whole psychology of you know being a legislator. You know what 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 is important to them. You know things. You know their different rules, job security. Um, you know the fact that basically legislators and public officials are problem solvers. And, you know, basically, understanding that because you need to put yourself in their shoes when you're dealing with them, you know. And, and a lot of people also think that, you know, you've got 60 legislators there and they're all the same, but they're not. They're individuals. They have different likes and likes. They, they, they like to receive information in different ways, all sorts of things like that. So that's that chapter. Then uh, chapter six looks basically at the, uh, at, you know, it's, ask the question who's got the political clout in you know and it talks about that and you know back to our ideal of not visiting 60 legislators it talks about you know the power that the majority has the relationship between the majority and the governor uh, the relationship between the the, the 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 majority in the house and the senate and how the minority fits in which of course is not very much very often so it talks about that and then the next chapter talks about the um you know the policies of lawmaking then chapter eight talks about the whole budget, uh, the politics of the budget. And then the second half of the book really gets into things uh, directly related to lobbying. Uh, you know, the first half, so then it provides you with the essential background you need to understand about the system, the psychology of things. Then it looks at, you know, things like influence. It looks at campaign management. It looks at the pros and cons of various tactics, you know, like using the press, public relations campaigns, using the average citizen to come and tell their story, you know, and do, pull some of the heartstrings of legislators. Uh, chapter 13 looks at, you know, putting together a lobbying plan and uh, putting together materials that we talked about just now. Chapter 14. It's, it, sounds, it sounds like a Really, yeah. really fascinating book. Yeah. And looks, well, yeah, and the, the, the chapter fourteen looks at the whole question of dealing with somebody face to face. Chapter fifteen is the whole thing about um, you know day to day lobbying. Chapter sixteen is kind of a recap, and then there are some appendices: a tour of the Capitol, the, how to find buildings in downtown Juneau, some maps, some further reading, and then I have at the very last, I have a list of all the people I interviewed and so on. So that's well, the book. It sounds like uh, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to get it, and I'm going to make sure when we publish a podcast, I'll, I'll put a, I'll put the name and you know a link to folks who want to um, get it and read it. And Great. I'll, it sounds it sounds uh, sounds like right up my alley. So I'm yeah, definitely going to. Ch- I want to thank you for okay, yeah, thanks thir- a lot. Normally do thirty or forty minutes, but it's been such a good discussion. Yeah, We're good, coming yeah. up to an hour, so yeah, it's sure, a, yeah. Great. It's okay. Good, Great. Good, well, good thanks. Podcast. But I want to thank you for coming in, and we want maybe do another one down the road if you're back yeah, in yeah, back yeah. in town. Like, I'm sure I'll be getting here. I'll, I'll certainly be in Juneau promoting the book in March. Okay, and I'll yeah, probably, I should hopefully be in Juneau as well, yeah, so sure, maybe yeah, I'll sure. be down there as well doing more podcasts. So it's right, again, right. How to Lobby, Alaska State Government, Clive yeah, Thomas. and Yeah, University of Alaska Press pushed it. So you can, people can get it on Amazon, they can just go to the, they can type in the University of Alaska Press on Google, and in there it'll have a, a section about purchasing books and so on, or they can, as I said, they can just get it out of the library if they can't afford to buy it. It's only 25 bucks, you know. <laughs> well, Clive, I really appreciate you coming yeah, sure, in. Good, Great good. talking to you. All right, folks, if you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast uh, with me, get a hold of me and we'll be in touch. Landline.